0: Okay, the the, wor- the thing that really interests me has to do with how we evoke from people the kinds of ethical commitments that they have or can be encouraged to have that make it possible to have better government, that make it possible to produce collective goods, that make it possible to have a better society. I'm a political scientist, political economist, so I think about this Not so much from the perspective of moral reasoning or philosophy or psychology, for that matter, though all those disciplines come into play in my thinking. But I really think about it in terms of the kinds of institutional arrangements and contextual arrangements in which people find themselves And what it is about those that evoke certain kinds of behaviors as opposed to other kinds of behaviors and certain kinds of attitudes as opposed to other kinds of attitudes that ultimately lead to action. So I'm ultimately interested not just in how the individual's mind works, but how individual minds work together to create an aggregate outcome. So to give you a much more concrete example of that, a recent book that I co-authored with John Alquist um, called In the Interest of Others looked at a variety of labor unions because they are basically mini-governments in order to understand why it was that some were getting people to act on various kinds of social justice commitments and others didn't even ask the question. The first thing we had to think about was how much of this was self-selection. Had we just picked unions that picked people that then asked them to do what they were already willing to do? And the unions that we looked at were three dock worker unions, two in the United States, the the on-the-waterfront union um, on the East Coast, uh, the ILA, the International Longshore Association, and the more left-coast, left-wing Union, the ILWU, International Longshore and Warehouse Union, and a comparable union in Australia to the ILWU. We also looked at the Teamsters. This gave us a set of organizations that, as it turns out, attracted virtually the same kind of people with the same kind of heterogeneous mix of political uh, attitudes and, and commitments to larger social justice issues. These were all, since so we started our investigation looking from the 1930s until the 1990s. Um, In the early part of that story, the only people who joined unions um, were those who needed the jobs that the unions represented. They couldn't, in the midst of the Depression, they weren't about to choose a union simply for political reasons. So this really wasn't a self-selection question. This was really a question of what did the organization do that brought out in people um, the kinds of commitments that you saw in the International Longshore and Warehouse Union under Harry Bridges and the comparable union in Australia? And the answer, as it turned out, was a combination of a number of factors. Uh, one of the most important was the kind of commitments that the leadership had. We put it in terms of the kinds of leadership rents that, because we're economists in part, that the leaders were extracting from the population that they were serving. And in the case of the Teamsters, in the case of the East Coast dock workers, what they wanted was money and power. In the case, so pretty understandable from simple economic terms, um, what they wanted in the other two unions was they were willing to trade some power and certainly a lot of money Um, in order to be able to have the credibility with their members to try to persuade them to think in terms larger than their selves. And they did this by creating a set of institutional arrangements that basically constrained them as leaders, thus giving up power and creating much more of a democratic organization that was capable of challenging them um, they had to justify anything that they wanted to do, um, and they also gave up money. So, in the constitutions of both of these organizations, really dating back to the commune in in France, um, they had language in there that said that they couldn't the the head leadership could not be paid uh, or its pay was linked to the highest paid member of the union. So they never got incomes that were way out of line with their own membership, very different from the other two unions. So they created participatory democracies, and they put a lot of investment into socializing and educating members, creating schools, creating capacity for conversation, discussion, debate. Um, And as a result... Um, were able to ask them and often to get them to be engaged in all kinds of actions which had nothing to do with their economic wages, working conditions. And to give an example of that, um, both unions closed down the docks in the late 1930s, closed the ports, refusing to send scrap metal to Japan, um, refusing to load it on the boats, The initial, uh, they did that in response to the Chinese communities who were being discriminated against where they were, uh, who were worried about the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. When President Roosevelt called Harry Bridges, the head of the West Coast Union, and said, what are you doing? This is national security, a national issue, not a local issue, a union issue. He said, we're American citizens. That's what we do. We have a right to do what we want to do. The other piece of this, which is a very important part of the story of the leadership, is this is not a story that denies that people have economic self-interest, that they suddenly become committed to all these causes that are beyond them. These leaders also had to demonstrate that they could win better wages, hours, working conditions, whatever. So they satisfied their jobs, their positions as leaders of the union, did what they were supposed to do as leaders of unions, and then created a situation in which they could ask for and actually evoke from members all these kinds of behaviors. One of the best stories we had, I can't refrain from telling it, was when we were interviewing some old-timers, some pensioners on the, from the Australian docks, And this one guy followed us out and he said, you know, I never bought some of the communism and socialism or some of the leadership of my union. I just didn't get that. But when we're sitting on the docks having lunch during a what they called a stop work meeting and we're told that we're about to be asked to load ships to go to Indonesia that are Dutch ships carrying um, armaments to put down the Indonesian rebels. He said, I hadn't known about that before, but that is not fair. That's not fair dinkum, he said, which is an Australian way of saying not fair. And I refused to load those ships. So These workers were given information they didn't have before. It evoked norms that they probably had but hadn't been asked to act on, and to do so in a collective way that could actually make some difference because they wouldn't load the ships, which wouldn't go to Indonesia. So that's an example of thinking about the ways in which ethical commitments are evoked and even to some extent crafted um, by the organization itself. The, there's a lot of group pressure in that story. There's a lot of information that clearly, and socialization that clearly has a certain dynamic to it. But it's an important story in thinking about a whole variety of other kinds of situations in which we find ourselves as societies. So these are mini-governments. These were, these were organizations that were basically asking for taxes, i.e. dues, in return for delivering certain kinds of benefits, which they had to credibly deliver. And in return, they were asking their taxpayers, members, citizens, to begin to behave in ways that were responsible to people outside their particular circle. The way I think about this issue, the terminology that we used, is expanding the community of fate. Community of fate, not faith, Fate, but who is it that your fate is intertwined with? Who do you, we all know that most of us think about our community of fate as at least our family. If something happens to my sister or my mother or my niece, it matters to me. I feel that I would act in their interest because it's my interest in some sense of the word. But what these organizations have done is expanded that community of faith, made people think about that if something happens to that peasant in China, that rebel in Indonesia, um, that person somewhere else, that if it could happen to them, it could happen to me, that they're part of my world, that I have to care about them, I have to stand up here in order to prevent it from happening there. So I'm really interested in other situations, other kinds of contexts, and the kinds of mechanisms that are involved in evoking that kind of understanding. Now, a community of fate of the ones that we're talking about was for things that I and my co-author John value um, for these kinds of commitments. We can also think of, of communities of fate that could be Created that are exclusive, that are harmful to other people. Nazis come to mind and various other and ethnic groups who think only internally about themselves. So it's not that a community of fate is a good thing always, and that's something else that has to be understood better, or what are the circumstances under which communities of fate that are truly expansive, that are truly inclusive, of uh, people who are being in some ways harmed or exploited um, are created. And that whole theme goes way back in my work. From my earliest work I've been thinking about the conditions under which citizens will find government or subjects in some cases, because some of it's quite historical work, will find government legitimate, will find it trustworthy, will be willing to give their service their military service or pay taxes um, in order to support um, that government? What's that relationship look like? And this thinking about these unions was a way of getting even deeper into that relationship and trying to disentangle some of the pieces that would make that relationship work. One of the questions that comes up a lot about our work is where do these leaders come from? That's one question. And the other question that comes up is, are those leaders always able to sustain those kinds of principles with which they initially brought to bear? This is in the case of leaders who are trying to promote social justice issues and trying to promote equity or collective goods for people or be inclusive. There's also a question about leaders who have very different kinds of principles, which are um genocidal or very exclusive or very discriminatory. So a lot of the work is really, as it turns out, about the leadership itself and, and where it might come from and why it does what it does and how it's constrained to act in certain, itself is constrained to act in certain ways and not in other ways. And these are complicated questions. When I started thinking about these problems, I really didn't think so much in terms of leadership. I thought that Leadership is sort of, as an, as an idea that had sort of gone out of fashion. In fact, I did a literature review with my co-author, John Alquist, and we found that the interesting literature on leadership had sort of stopped in the 50s or the 60s, and there wasn't a lot of great work being done right now. So there are a couple questions here that I think we need to parse. So the first one is, where do these leaders come from? And we didn't answer that question. And I think that's one of the questions that still needs to be answered. The ones that we were looking at, the four sets of leaders that we were looking at in the union book, were very different. So in the case of the Teamsters, even if they were corrupt, like Dave Beck or Jimmy Hoffa, they were actually incredibly committed to the workers. They were committed to making their lives better, but they thought all this stuff about Worried about other people outside your particular union was irrelevant. Um, they they couldn't imagine why you would even care about that. They were what we would think of as very economistic leaders. They were business. They were running a business, and they served their members on the narrow things that they were being employed to do. Some leaders are just simply corrupt, like the lead, some of the leaders of the East Coast labor union. They were clearly in it to make money. And then you've got leaders like Harry Bridges or Big Jim Healy from Australia who came out of in their case, came out of the Communist Party, had a whole series of social, even though Harry Bridges denied being in the Communist Party, had clearly very strong social principles. So those leaders... We can't explain, we can look at their biographies, but we want to know more about what creates that kind of circumstance in which those kinds of people might come to prominence and dominance. But that's only part of the question. The next question is really, okay, we find them. They get into an organization, why won't they become a Mugabe? He started fine. Mugabe had all kinds of principles. So how do you institutionalize and hold accountable and keep holding accountable the leadership that comes in with these high principles and these commitments to the revolution, to social justice, to equity, whatever, and make sure that they don't end up stealing everything in sight or betraying the cause in some way or another? And that really requires constitutional arrangements and institutional arrangements and a whole variety of mechanisms to enforce that. And they can't be external mechanisms to the organization. They have to be internal to the organization itself. It has to be um, creating a set of rules that actually have to be followed, else you get thrown out. So it turns out in both of these unions, um, a recall petition required almost no signatures at all, 15, something like that. Um, There were periodic elections. um, But equally importantly, the members had strong voice, and they could vote down things, and did. We did a whole big um, study of the constitutional convention, the the annual meetings, of uh, or biannual, triannual, as they developed, Uh, Congresses of these organizations and followed who, when did the leadership always win? No, it didn't. It often lost. It didn't initiate everything. It had to have big fights before it could win. It needed to garner votes. So that kept these leaders accountable, that process, that set of issues. Now, the third question that I think gets raised with leadership is these guys had very strong, in my value world, positive principles who that I respected and was sort of cheering them on as I'm writing this book, but there are others who come into power whose principles I really despise. Um, I think one thing we need to be able to be attentive to is what about the cult leaders or the leaders of Um, some of the groups that are creating terrorist threats around the world who are also committed and principled and possibly even give their members some voice. But the values with which they start are from the perspective of many of us very problematic. So all of that has to be thought about. And those are more questions than answers at this point. An important question about this line of work is how we translate it to other situations that are going on in the world today and have gone on historically. And I think we're at the point in the work where what we have are some insights but not total answers to some of the questions we'd really like to address. So one of the insights we have is that there are such things if you will, as communities of fate, that extend beyond the family. And that they are impartially, partially they're constructed, um, and partially they're sustained by a variety, by a group process that involves internal social pressure, certain kinds of educational processes that go on that you can call them brainwashing, you can call them socialization, you can call them teaching, it really depends on the circumstance and your perspective. But we can see certain of the things that will sustain or create a community of faith. Now, I have to keep emphasizing that some communities of faith are very inclusive and expansive and are not about discrimination, but are about helping people who are, not, who are you may not even know and serving a larger interest. And some communities of fate are very exclusive, very um, geared towards only those people within the community and everybody else is the enemy who can be literally decimated if um, you so choose. And we see that happening today. We can we can see that in all of these communities of faith, there are certain kinds of mechanisms and processes that are going on. Um, and so, if we want to ch- if we want to create one that's expansive, or if we want to block one that is discriminatory and exclusive, I think having an understanding of the processes that they use is quite crucial, whether we want to replicate it or prevent it. So. In the very narrowly focused ones that can lead to terrorism and to um, discriminatory practices, often violent practices against those outside that community, Um, I think we've learned that they are in fact something that's based on a group, that there's an important role for leadership in there, so that you need to undermine The credibility of the leaders among those who would be attracted to the community, not among the external world, but among those who would be attracted to the community. Um, You have to be attentive to the kinds of socialization processes that are being used in that community of faith and try to counter that in language and in terms that actually reach people. I guess the, the last thing To say about all that and what we've, not the last, but another thing to say about all that and what we've learned is it was really interesting about the kinds of communities of faith that we recognized as expansive and positive in some way or another, trying to include more people and help more people, had social justice commitments in these particular cases, but could just be charitable instincts, Uh, doesn't have to be so big as a social justice commitment. In in all of those cases, people were serving their, they were in an organization that they believed was serving their self-interest and was doing a credible, decent job of that, whether it be a government or a union, and then could be asked to think about other people. So there's something in this about providing that we learned about the positive ones, positive community, faith, That there's something that's an economic issue in here or well-being issue as well as an ethical issue that something about feeling like you're being taken care of and your very immediate community of fate your family is being taken care of helps you to think outside your narrow circumstances and to think more broadly okay so if i try to think about um as i have on occasion think about how this applies to some of the organizations and, and governments that we see out there today, whether it be ISIS or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or whatever is going on. I think there, there are a couple of, of important things to take away from this. Um, so one of the things that's critical is the quality of information that people are getting and how you can ensure that that information is actually appropriately informative. And that's not an easy question to address because there's so much, there's so many sources of information, there's so much obfuscation of what is actually going on and what leads from one thing to another thing. But one of the the most important things I think we need to do, whether it be with people who we think have got it, the Tea Party in the United States, who we think have got a totally misconception of the way in which the world works. Or ISIS, another group with very different kinds of implications who I think has a total misconception of the way the world works or who's to blame for what or what's going on is to try to figure out, and we've begun to figure out, some of the ways to provide alternative and credible sources of information. So to be constantly, it requires constant vigilance, it requires government actors and officials to act in a somewhat different way than they have. I mean, one of my great disappointments over the Obama administration, for example, is here's this incredible speaker rhetorician who's not using the bully pulpit in the way that he could to really make it clear what's going on in the economy, what's going on in the Ukraine, what's going on with Ebola or whatever, to dispel some of the incredible myth-making that is going on that then these problematic communities of fate or even just misguided communities of fate they, they use information so bizarrely. So that requires developing capacities, which we have. I mean, uh, you mentioned Jon Stewart comes up. He's someone who's brilliant at being able to make... I mean, I watch my nephew watch Jon Stewart, and he learns things he wouldn't have learned another way. So part of this and it's one of the reasons I have a younger collaborator someone who sort of understands social media or understands the way in which people are learning things and hearing things now so where we've had communities of faith that are expansive that are committed to helping other people we've also had in them the capacity to take information that's out there to help people see get information get understanding of what's going on, to learn about situations that they didn't know about before, and to also realize some of their capacity to act on those situations. I don't see a lot of that happening in terms of really countering the problematic information that goes into some of these organizations, and yet we have the capacity as a society to do that. We have a lot of smart people who know a lot about communications, who know a lot about social media. Um, We need more John Stewart's out there and others even younger than he who know how to reach a broader audience and dispel some of the myths. So I do think that one of the ways of thinking about how to translate the work that I've been doing into contemporary circumstances is really to think, so there several factors that we've identified as crucial for producing these community of faith. One is leadership and one is information and communication, and they're linked to each other. And the third is the capacity to act and all of that with the backdrop of providing some minimum level of economic security and well-being. Okay. But that's a backdrop condition. So where we are failing as a society, is really on the first two. If we think about some of the organizations that we might think of as problematic, like the Tea Party or like ISIS, they've, pro- they've provided a capacity to act, but based on questionable information and questionable leadership. So they've solved one of the problems for communities of fate to exist and survive and to continue but on the basis of things that lead them to very perverse, in my view, actions. So we've talked already a little bit about the issue of information and communication, and that's that's a critical issue, and we have to continue to work very hard to figure... I mean, we think about something like Twitter. Yes, it provides loads of information that we never had before, but who's curating that information? And do we find the curator of that information at all credible. So how do we find that curator of information? And that's the leadership issue. And I think we have not paid sufficient attention to how to develop or support those kinds of leaders who actually are doing really positive things and they don't know how to lead once they get into position. So I think the real big issue to solve is back to this question of leadership. Principled, I wrote a paper once called Principled Principles. So we need leaders, princ- leaders the principal, um, who has actually got principles, but knows how to communicate them, knows how to uh, be accountable to the publics that he or she should be accountable to, to give those publics voice, I think the other part of this communication and information piece is not just the leader providing some information and communication and doing it in a way that people are more or less likely to believe, but it's also giving enough people voice to challenge that information, to say, I read over here, so tell me why that's not right, and to really create a kind of deliberative process that raises questions among people who are, have to be in the same room together. Um, What's really going on here? And is this something we should act on or not? Is this credible or not? The concept of community of fate, I did a little um, background check on it to see if I created it, which I had thought I had. And it turns out that it has appeared in other literatures from time to time in some form or another mostly in philosophy, about thinking about an ethical situation in which people would act together. Mm -hmm. Um, It hasn't so much appeared in psychology or or neuroscience, as far as I know, Though I suspect, as I start to read some people like Jonathan Haidt and others, who are thinking about moral reasoning, that the kind of community in which you're in clearly has consequences for the kind of moral reasoning that you do. And so there are a lot of links there that I need to still explore and I'm just beginning to. Well, it's a very it's a very interdisciplinary subject. There's no question about that. Um, because as I've said, a community of fate is about evoking norms and beliefs about the way in which the world actually works. That was part of what the great um, capacity of the leadership was to change people's beliefs about whether they could actually do something and change something. And the notion of that beliefs of that sort comes from economics, comes from and Bayesianism, comes from um, philosophy, comes from psychology. When you think about the kinds of organizational foundations for a community of faith. You're already in the world of sociology, um, again, some economics, certainly political science, certainly history um, in thinking about those issues. So it's a very multidisciplinary concept by its very nature. And I think to answer the kinds of questions that we've been talking about in relationship to it requires a multidisciplinary approach. We keep coming back to the issue of a community of fate can be for good or for bad, right so we can imagine the beer hall in Munich creating and the what happened there that created a community of fate and we can create we can imagine the left wing um, union organizers and communist uh, intellectuals developing a different kind of community of fate but I think the real distinction between them is not just the ethical principles that inform them. That's clearly an important distinction. But what kind of community of faith it is, and the terminology that I use there, and I keep repeating and want to get that through, is between an inclusive and an expansive community of faith versus an exclusive and um, narrowing community of faith. And that's really the difference. So whatever the actual principles or ethics of the leaders and the members a community of faith that is based on discriminating against certain people, engaging in genocide against certain people, terrorizing certain people because they're the other, whatever other that is, as opposed to thinking about everybody as being part of the same community and you have to there may be enemies, but they're of a very different kind. They're, of, um, they're not because they're Jewish or because they're um, a particular sect of Muslim or because they're black. It's because they are doing bad things to someone, clearly bad things, like killing them or raping them or depriving them of food and uh, medicine um, to some group. Of people so scale is a real issue here I mean I I don't think it can be scaled up to include the whole world but it can certainly be scaled up to include all kinds of organizations that have global commitments and cross um, various kinds of boundaries so Doctors Without Borders is a very good example of a community of faith that has been created among um, medical practitioners that now literally crosses borders Um, engages people outside it, is attracting others to be part of it, either as a support network or as activists within it, um, that meets all the criteria of uh, an expansive community of faith. They don't decide who to treat on the basis of their color, race, sex. But whether they're sick or not, whether they're in an environment where they're not being treated, literally medically treated uh, very well, those are the criteria of an expansive community of faith, as opposed to making decisions on some grounds like race, sex, um, religion. So I w- we met uh, originally, or I met John Brockman originally, at um, a conference that Lawrence Krauss organized at Arizona State called Origins. And I got invited to this conference um, to talk about the origins of the state which is something I have studied and know something about, so the origins of government. And uh, when I started looking at the program, I realized I was on the very last panel because we had to do the origins of the universe, the origins of various physical and astronomical uh, parts of origins, biological origins, origins of speech, um, origins of species, and... Finally, we get to the origin of the state, which is very late in the story. So as a political scientist, often origins of the state is the first thing you study. So that's why I was at that conference. I'm a political scientist who studies, uses historical material, thinks about how governments come into being and how they are sustained. Um, I got to that work through, I did a PhD at Harvard, um, got my Ph.D. in 74, took what I meant to be a first job and a short job at the University of Washington in order to explore the West Coast of the United States and to get out of the elite university system that I'd been part of for so long, Rinmar before Harvard. And um, while I was there, I met Doug North, um, who sort of adopted me. He's an economist economic historian who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1993. And we taught a course. I'd written a dissertation and a first book, which was had to do with problems of conflict and collusion, various issues of cooperation. And um, he and I ended up teaching a political economy seminar to undergraduates for almost 10 years. And out of that came his Nobel Prize-winning book, Structure and Change in Economic History, and a book that really transformed my career, called "Of Rule and Revenue," of rule and revenue, um, which was about the origins of the tax capacity and the extractive capacity of the state. So it took me back to ancient Greece and went through various modes of production. A young Marxist was I, um, through to contemporary democracies, looking at Australia. That really started me on the path of thinking much more concretely about this relationship between governments and their subjects and citizens. And the condition, when I started writing that book, one of the things that Doug North and lots of other economists were working on right then um, in the late 70s and early 80s was the development of transaction cost economics out of the work of Ronald Coase. And I assumed that the explanation of why taxes look so different and over different parts of history and different places had to do with economic transaction costs. What I learned is it really had to do with political transaction costs, much more than economic transaction costs. Mm-hmm. And by political transaction costs, I mean the cost of becoming legitimate, gauging the quasi-voluntary compliance, these were rules people had to follow. But The best tax systems were based on the voluntary as well as the quasi-voluntary part of compliance. If you had to monitor everybody, if you had to coerce everybody. So it was really, in a sense, the beginning of my interest in Community of Fate. You wanted to create an environment in which people felt morally obligated to pay taxes if certain conditions existed, Um, they believed government was actually going to keep its promises. The money they extracted was going to be used more or less for what they promised. The way they made that decision um, and implemented those decisions were relatively fair. And most importantly, that there was enforcement, not so much against me, but against someone who didn't pay their taxes. You wanted to make sure that they actually were made to pay their taxes or else why would you? The problem with looking at that, question was I could see that there was this important role of quasi-voluntary compliance and legitimacy, but you can't study the conditions under which people pay their taxes because those are hidden behaviors. Um, So I wanted to look at that question and delve deeper into it, and I looked at military service and conscription, again, over history, looking at five or six countries because I could get material under the conditions and who was most likely to go along with the demand for uh, volunteering for the military during a big war. Not just about conscription, but about volunteering. I looked at uh, five Anglo-Saxon democracies, U.S., Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and France very different kind of model of a country, um, of a democracy over approximately 200 years. One of the most interesting cases was probably Canada, because the difference between um, the Anglophones and the Francophones was really strong and really demonstrated that the conditions under which citizens would give their, in this case, contingent consent, uh, they it was a voluntary behavior, whether to sign up for the military or not, uh, really was distinctive between the two. So the Canadian, um, I looked at Ontario versus Quebec because I could get good data. And in Ontario, they thought, World War One, we have to fight. The motherland, Britain, is under attack. In Quebec, they said, what do you mean the motherland? France, was not our motherland, even though they're under attack. They left us here on the ice floes and then modified their religion, had a revolution, did all kinds of things. We have no obligation to the French. And the Canadian Constitution says that we only have to fight if we're attacked, if Canada's attacked, and we're not buying this, that Canada's attacked if France or Britain is attacked. The same thing happened again in World War II. And largely what was responsible for this was that the Francophones did not feel that the Canadian government, the federal government, had come through on its promises to them. On language, on a whole variety of other issues which they felt were part of their original contract to become part of Canada. Okay. So that gave me an in into that kind of question of legitimacy. And I continued to worry this problem about where do these obligations come from? How are they constructed? You could see in Francophone Canada that the priests, the communities, everything was supporting this particular way of thinking about the issue. And in Anglophone Canada, the ministers, the organizations were all committed to another way. The newspapers. So they were socially constructing knowledge, information, ways to think about this question. And I wanted to explore that further. And that led to ultimately, though there were some stops in between thinking about trust and trustworthiness and other issues, but ultimately led to the book that brings up the question of community of fate and how that gets constructed. Uh, I spent forty years at the University of Washington with some I went half time about five years ago and took a job in Australia to help set up a new center there. And uh, last year I was recruited very strongly to become Director of the Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences and the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. And the center um, is in the process of reimagining itself. It's celebrating its 60th anniversary, and we are trying to be um, one of the key locations for advancing the most interesting work in the social sciences that can be done. And this involves not only continuing to accept individual applicant-based fellowships, it's a residential fellowship facility, Um, as we have been doing for 60 years, but also encouraging, to the extent we can, um, research-based projects and programs that also produce fellows. And we've been, in the six months that I've been there, we seem to be filling a very important niche and have been attracting some extraordinarily interesting programs in psychology and political science and political economy and history, And all of them involving multiple disciplines to think about really important social science questions and social science questions with real implications for society and how people lead their lives.